Thought Project Podcast, Freethinkers. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project Editor-in-Chief, Matt Agarist. Our guest this week is Whitney Webb, who is a writer, researcher, investigative journalist, and renowned expert on the Jeffrey Epstein case. She also writes for a number of different publications, including her own site, UnlimitedHangout.com. She just finished her book a day before this interview called America is One Nation Under Blackmail, detailing all the different ties and connections to Epstein and the cabal in which he operated from. We tried for months to break through Whitney's busy schedule for this conversation, and lucky for us, it comes two days after the Maxwell sentencing, making it the perfect time to re-examine the Epstein case. Welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast, Whitney. We've been wanting you on this podcast for years now, and you're finally here with us. So we're very excited. We want to get into a number of different topics with you, like COVID-1984, uh, monkeypox, censorship, big tech, because you're so in tune with so many different current issues. But perhaps maybe we should just start with a topic you're a leading expert on, which is the Epstein saga, uh, especially considering just a couple of days ago, Ghislaine Maxwell uh, was sentenced to just 20 years in prison. So I kind of want to get your take on that. Uh, I've seen some mainstream experts on justice suggest that this is the correct amount of time for a sentencing. But what are your thoughts on it? Okay. Well, you know, I have. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Sorry it took me so long uh, (laughs) to make an appearance. Um, Things have been pretty crazy. And as as a lot of people know, I've also been working on a a book on the Epstein saga uh, for a couple of years now. And it's done finally. So that's uh, great news. But uh, anyway, about uh, the Ghislaine Maxwell verdict, I have a lot of uh, mixed feelings about it. I think the only reason, and I've said this before when she was arrested, um, back, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I think the only reason they even went after her, it wasn't because they couldn't find her, right? It was because the story, they couldn't successfully memory hole it because Ghislaine Maxwell was still around and people that, you know, consumed media information about, you know, Jeffrey Epstein knew how intimately involved she was, um, how intimately involved she was in his activities. Right. Um, and, her not being like hunted for or investigated or charged with anything was like an obvious red flag for a lot of people. And I think they were trying to um, just make, you know, memory hold the story. So the, the first narrative they went with was Jeffrey Epstein is a bad uh, billionaire and he was a very dirty man and he was just very charismatic and, you know, um, deceived everyone because he was so, you know, uh, good with words and flattery and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, I mean, I, I'm sure people are f- familiar with, with those narratives right now. You know, just blame everything on Epstein and he deceived all the people and no one else is guilty but him. Yeah. And that didn't really stick. And so they went after Ghislaine. Um, that's my, that's my opinion about it anyway. Um, 
And some of the charges against her were were odd and <laughs> uh, narrow. I thought, uh, I mean, if you read the indictment, the original indictment here, uh, they basically admit that she was involved in assaulting um, women, young women, and they didn't charge her for that. They just charged her with like enticing underage girls to cross state lines for sex acts and stuff like that. So why wouldn't you charge her for the more severe crime of, you know, um, sexually assaulting people herself? And being a pedophile, uh, you know, that didn't really even get into the mainstream narrative at all. It was just like Epstein's helper um, or Epstein's gal pal, as a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, U.S. mainstream media sort of described her as, right? Um, so I think now what we have here is, a, a, is yet another effort with the sentencing to be like, well, look, justice was served uh, and we can all go back to sleep now and not think about Epstein or his other activities or the Maxwell family beyond Ghislaine. Right. So I think that's basically what uh, the sentencing is about. And I would really urge people in the same way that I urged people when Epstein was um, suicided <laughs> or whatever in, in August 2019. Uh, don't go back to sleep on this. This is something that uh, we have to keep pushing on. This is a Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, that whole thing intimately involved the state, some state, because it was, you know, tied to intelligence. So there was some sort of state uh, sanctioned activity going on, um, either by the U.S., Israel or both. And there has to be accountability for that. And because we can't keep living in a, in a society where intelligence agencies engage in all sorts of insane criminal activity and are never held accountable. Because we've had that going on for decades and decades and decades, not just in terms of sex trafficking, but also in terms of uh, financial fraud and pretty much every other crime you can think of um, intelligence agencies have been doing and they're never held accountable. So what happens when you have... Um, basically an entity that's unaccountable for anything and has all this power and can do whatever it wants and, and never gets in trouble for it. And they just screw everyone over all day long. Eventually you're going to have some sort of uh, insane societal collapse and look where we are today. I mean, how much longer can we really deal with this crap? Good point. And it seems like everybody involved in the uh, Maxwell and Epstein like prosecution is, is somehow connected and like even moves up the ladder once they are initially involved it like the, um, Judge Allison Nathan, right? She she quietly took off 10 years of um of Maxwell's sentences back in April, you know, and then like no one reported on that because she just yeah. dropped some of the charges because the defense allegedly convinced her that they were like duplicate charges. And then like in March of uh 2021, uh, Nathan like redacted all these that what could have been like the client list, right? Wasn't that um wasn't that one of the moves that she made? And then uh, because she yeah, said it was were, like too sensational or something to, to, to let the public know about. Yeah, there were a couple things. What I think you're referring to is her decision to redact names of third parties. Right. Which right. means, uh, you know, there were entered into evidence and shown in court. There were these uh, pictures and I think video too of all these binders of CDs with like apparently third party information, i.e. people's names all over them. <laughs> of people who were filmed <laughs> right? right um so you and know a lot of promoted. people <laughs> right right and so she didn't you know let these third party names come out you know were those the quote-unquote johns as they've been referred to the people the clients that were filmed having sex with underage kids a lot of people think so but we don't really know um but she she made that claim that it was you know it would have been damaging to third parties but uh, yeah. it, it's there's been a, a consistent cover up of the blackmail 
um, aspect also. But, you know, I think that's one of the giveaways that this was some sort of intelligence operation. But there's been a lot of intelligence operations in the U.S. that the mainstream media will then say, well, this wasn't intelligence. This was uh, something else entirely. And it was just bad people. And, and they'll try and do like a limited hangout version of like, oh, it's just this corruption, this breed of corruption that you're all used to. No big deal. This was play to, uh, pay for play politics and nothing more or something like that. Uh, that happens a lot with the Clintons, you know, and, and and then they just leave it there. They're like, oh, well, that's just how the, the Clintons are. Politics as usual. Don't bother changing it. Um, that, that seems to be how this um stuff sort of happens. But yeah, a lot of the people involved in the in the prosecution um, and the defense are obviously, you know, have, have some odd links. I mean, you have like James Comey's daughter being a prosecutor. A lot of people were like, huh, about that. Um, it's, and, and of course there's a lot of um, oddities. I, at some point we'll be doing a, an article. I don't know when, so I'm going to um, decide not to talk about a lot of the details till we get it out. But there's a lot of weird things too about the lawyers for um, the Epstein victims. And um, it, it's very sus uh, just in, in general, some of the stuff, uh, some of the lawyers at that firm and stuff that really makes you wonder what's going on here. Um, my conclusion from writing an insanely massive book about not just Epstein, but his broader network and how he was, um, able to uh, to operate is that there's been a consistent effort to keep the the attention focused solely on Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes and not any of his other activities uh, including other things related to intelligence but um, more broadly speaking stuff involving arms deals and arms smuggling and uh, you know financial fraud uh, to a huge degree uh, and you know, that's, <laughs> to be honest, it's like totally insane. I don't know how much uh, you want me to get into. And I didn't really ask my uh, uh, publisher how much I can get into before the book actually comes out. Uh, but I, I'm sure I can probably talk about, about it in general terms. But Epstein, yeah. far beyond sex traffic, like a lot of these guys in this network used like modeling agencies and would like give women to their business associates to like butter them up, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, and, the, and Adnan Khashoggi, who was, you know, affiliated with Epstein in the 1980s was one of these guys. And a lot of those dudes that were involved in these shady intelligence weapons deals of the eighties and nineties uh, did this. So Epstein's really not an anomaly there, but he's sort of been treated as one. Um, but his other activities are very, and it, it's just mental, dude. Um, yeah. Can you go into that a little bit? Like how the like some high ranking Israeli military officials came out and said that Epstein was tied to intelligence agencies, right? Like a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so there's been those claims. Uh, and it's not just that. Uh, it's also people he worked with in, in the 80s, like the, the Tower Financial guy, Steve Hoffenberg. Um, but you know, it, it, um, what I'm talking about is, uh, even, okay. So the book's really long and I, I just finished it like literally yesterday. <laughs> so there's like, um, the stuff that's like freshest in my brain, I guess, is about stuff that was going on in the 1990s. And I'm not going to get into too many details cause it's still, um, you know, several weeks before the book actually comes out. But basically, um, I'm sure a lot of people know that there's this uh, Clinton guy, Clinton White House guy named Mark Middleton. Yeah, I'm sure you saw that he uh, died suspiciously in May and what has been ruled a suicide and no pictures are allowed out of his death. 
right and all of this stuff right and it turns out um that he's been reported on as the guy that let epstein into the white house a bunch of times yeah so that 18 times (laughs) yeah well 17 times 17 okay yeah so i think um the mark middleton stuff is actually enormous uh i'll give you an example The first time George W. Bush invoked executive privilege for something, it was to cover up, uh, to prevent any documents about the investigation into Mark Middleton being released to Congress. This was in September 2001, right before 9-11. They said no documents on Mark Middleton can come out in 2001. Do you think that was about Epstein? No, because Epstein wasn't infamous then. It was about the other stuff Mark Middleton was being investigated for so uh, in the in the mid 90s. And I'm really amazed that there's been like no coverage of Mark Middleton at all <laughs> beyond like, you know, you have the Daily Mail, which is a British tabloid. They're the only people that did in-depth inve- like reporting on the Epstein visitor logs to the White House which should be a, a big head scratcher too. Like why would sure. that not get reported on in, in the U S mainstream press? They're also the only ones to really report on Middleton's death, except from local Arkansas newspapers. Um, apparently Middleton in May was found with like a, a cheap dollar store extension cord around his neck and a, a shotgun wound to the chest. And this was ruled a suicide. He apparently, hung himself with an extension cord and then was able to shoot himself with a shotgun, a shotgun in the chest. Wow. Yeah. Hit, I'm like uh, hanging from a tree <laughs> on uh, some property tied to some NGO called, called Heifer International. Something yeah, like that. Matt beat me to it, but I think that sounds just like Gary Webb, you know, the two bullets to the back of the head. I mean, <laughs> one would be hard enough. And then the yeah. second one, you know, so, so here's the thing. I don't want to get into too many details, but basically um, a lot of the stuff that Gary Webb wrote about, about this parallel Iran-Contra operation that was still going on um, after Iran-Contra supposedly stopped. Um, There was another operation like that, but instead of uh, drugs being brought in from Latin America, it was automatic weapons being brought in from China. Yeah. And it looks like Epstein was involved with that during the 90s. And that's why he was meeting with Mark Middleton. And that's fucking mental. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, so for people that aren't familiar, um, you can read the fourth part of my Epstein series for Mint Press News um, about uh, uh, sort of about some of the stuff. Um, uh, Epstein, in well, I guess it was um, be- between 1993 and 1995, uh, Epstein and Leslie Wexner were involved in trying to get some airline. Uh, relocated to Columbus to run cargo for the limited. And they went after one airline that was called Aero Air. And that didn't work out. And then they tried uh, to, <laughs> they, they tried to court this other company that was a joint venture of Southern Air Transport. And that didn't work out. And then they went and they went after just Southern Air Transport directly. And then basically with all this money, uh, uh, political uh, or like political appointees or uh, political figures that were bankrolled by Wexner offered them this big like incentive package to relocate from Miami, Florida to Columbus, Ohio. <clears throat> and that's where they were going to be. Uh, that's where they reestablished themselves to run cargo ex- expressly for the limited pretty much uh, going from Columbus, Ohio to Hong Kong, China. 
there's an insane amount of stuff there, but basically what I will say is that Aero Air and Southern Air Transport are both uh, CIA-linked airlines that in the 1980s were smuggling uh, drugs and weapons. Uh, because of Iran-Contra and other stuff, they were tied up with BCCI, um, which is like this um, really insanely corrupt bank that was used um, uh, for money laundering, among other things, for uh, private intelligence networks and also state intelligence networks. A lot of CIA connections, a lot of Israeli intelligence connections, and of course, uh, Saudi Arabian intelligence and, and other you know countries in, in that network. And it's like, this is really <laughs> mental stuff. So like the more I got into this crap, the more I started to feel like, oh, now I get why they're only talking about the salacious stuff because they don't want anyone to look at this or ask questions. Um, and it's really telling when you think about just Leslie Wexner and the limited, uh, you know, for logistics, they picked out of all the airlines in the U.S. Those are the two airlines they decided to try and, and, and get to run stuff for the limited between Columbus and, uh, and China. Yeah. Um, that's a little weird. And if you consider before that, that they didn't have air logistics limited before, before their logistics was mostly, um, trucking. Yeah. And the trucking company they used was called Walsh trucking and Frank Walsh who ran that was a, an associate of organized crime period. I mean, that's like super well-documented. So you know, all of the logistics for the limited are either organized crime or the CIA arms and drug smuggling uh, airlines. Uh, oh, what conclusions do we do we draw from that? You know, so when I wrote the original series, I was like, this is very telling that they're using this stuff. But I was never able to answer. Well, why did they want that? What were they doing? Because at the time um, when when Southern Air Transport, for example, got established, um, in Columbus, they were like top Ohio officials that said stuff like, um, this is the Mayor Lansky run, like the Inspector General, I think of Ohio said that to a journalist at the time, basically calling it like an organized crime racket, <laughs> the, the Southern Air Transport uh, route from Hong Kong to Columbus that was supposedly um, carrying cargo just for the limited. Uh, so they knew something was rotten there. And I was like, well, what, what are they doing? What has Southern Air Transport historically done? Uh, but Mark Middleton is, is, is unravels the whole thing and it's mental. I mean, seriously, the story's so huge. So I don't, um, I like blew my own brain <laughs> basically. Um, I'm doing this stuff. So, you know, it'll, uh, more on that will be in the book, but, um, you know, the more you look at this stuff, it becomes really clear that they don't want you looking at the other stuff that Epstein and also Maxwell were doing. Um, also in the book, um, I think I guess I'm the first person to come across a set of pictures. Uh, and I'm they're online. I'm amazed people in mainstream media weren't, I haven't found these yet, but you know, it's basically Bill Clinton after he's not president, but he was an official envoy. Uh, for George W. Bush, he like gave Clinton in some show of, I guess, camaraderie between administrations or whatever. Uh, he couldn't go to something and he sent, you know, Clinton as his emissary uh, to make this this particular trip. I guess it was 2002. Um, so he's meeting with heads of state as the emissary of the president of the United States and photographed with him in those meetings of heads of state are both Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. That's insane. <laughs> Why is this not come out? You know what I mean? Um, 
Right. <sighs> so I'm sort of it, left there, like scratching my head, like, okay. Um, it reminds me of those pictures of Ghislaine Maxwell in, in Disneyland, like up on stage, like dancing with all like the mascot characters. Oh, uh, yeah. Stuff. So that and, was like, 1985. It was a it was Disney Day fundraiser uh, on behalf of the Daily Mirror, which uh, Robert Maxwell had bought, I think, um, three ish years prior. Uh huh. Uh, and that's a really weird fundraiser. Uh, because it was with, um, it was, it was co-hosted by like these, um, British aristocrats, the, I, I think you pronounce it Marquis, like the Marquis of Bath or something like that. And he was apparently super weird. Like he was obsessed with Hitler and had all these, this weird art collection, uh, of Hitler's paintings <laughs> and like has these weird quotes about how Hitler was the best thing ever weird guy. And then the same night as that fundraiser, uh, the, his son is found like, uh hanging dead by the neck in some bar uh a bunch of weird stuff went on uh around the day of that fundraiser apparently um yeah not a good look for disney uh, considering the circumstances mm -hmm. and, uh... yeah well okay so i didn't get to put this in the book but i might as well just um put it out there so um I, for most of the 90s the head of the imagineering partner uh um department at disney was this guy named brand farron and uh brand farron basically brought two best friends of epstein in to run r&d for imagineering one of them is a guy named danny hillis um and if you google epstein and danny hillis you'll find a bunch of quotes from like these old uh articles like the vicky ward one in vanity fair and stuff from like 2003 2002 about epstein and danny hillis is like epstein's a genius you know, he's my best friend uh, before he's like infamous, you know, and Marvin Minsky is a guy that's like been named in Virginia uh, Giffray or Virginia Roberts's depositions and stuff as someone she mm. was forced to have sex with mm. uh, with Epstein. He he died before, you know, the Epstein scandal really broke again with Epstein's second arrest in 2019. Um, but, you know, these are the two guys that these <laughs> that that brand Farron brings on. So you have like some really people really close to Epstein basically running a major part of Disney for a period of time. And it's weird because both of these guys are really involved with the military and uh, Danny Hillis and Marvin Minsky and with artificial intelligence, Danny Hillis ran some program called uh, program, some um, company called thinking machines in the 1980s that was basically contracting with DARPA to make a supercomputer. Marvin Minsky was like the main MIT guy of artificial intelligence and it's weird because thinking machines is where a bunch of uh well several people that later got involved with epstein uh were previously found in the 80s marvin minsky worked there as well with danny hillis and also uh, eric lander who just until recently was head of the um office for science and technology at the white house under Bi uh, under biden uh, who was funded by epstein he also worked at thinking machines and i think there's a there's a couple others brand farron uh, after he left Disney Imagineering, he co-creates a, a company called Applied Minds with Danny Hillis. So he's like super close to this Danny Hillis guy who in turn is uh, super close to, to Epstein, which is which is pretty weird. But he was also really involved with intelligence stuff. Why he was at uh, Disney. So like his, he, the whole time he was at Disney he was really associated with um like the military and intelligence in general. He was a member of the army science board, why he's the head of creative technology for Disney. Um, 
and he was on the Defense Science Board, um, advisory suffer for DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, um, the Chief of Naval Operations Executive Panel. Um, I don't know, pretty weird. So he's really involved in this world of like intelligence military stuff. He's also in charge of creative whatever for Disney. And then he brings in, you know, uh, one of whom is an accused pedophile by the most high profile Epstein victim um, of all. And another one, a really close associate with Epstein, who, of course, um, most people probably know that Epstein was really into transhumanism and stuff. And Minsky and, and Hillis also definitely are. Um, and these were the people running Disney for. Uh, you know, at least a, a good number of years in the 1990s. Pretty wild, huh? So Disney's a weird, com- uh, a weird company. Uh, I think there's a book out there that talks about the role of like the Office of Strategic Services, which is the forerunner of the CIA, uh, being intimately involved with uh, Disney from the very beginning, like with Walt Disney, the construction of Disneyland and Disney World and all this stuff. I mean, you've had army and intelligence stuff there from from the very beginning, really. So that's Disney for you. Yeah. Wow. Disney has a whole history of uh, hiring pedophiles and whatnot as well, you know, like convicted pedophiles. The um, the one one the guy that made Jeepers Creepers and Powder, you know, he he uh, Disney hired him after after he got out of jail to make movies for him. <laughs> it's just and there's like a whole long list of Disney pedophiles whom they've hired over the years. It's uh, it's crazy. And even the a sheriff was recently quoted talking about how often Disney employees are arrested for, for child pornography and pedophilia. Yeah. Even more of a, an extension or proxy, I guess, to the, the grooming claims. I mean, with everything that Whitney just shared with us. So on June 6th, you had a tweet that said, um, isn't it odd how there's been no interest in investigating why the state department rented a mansion to Jeffrey Epstein while he was actively involved in sex trafficking, sex blackmailing activities in the early nineties. It's almost like there's a cover up or something. So that's actually something I hadn't read or heard before regarding the Epstein case. Uh, first of all, like where do you dig up old info like this? And I mean, it's, Second, it's just completely insane to assume that the State Department didn't know he was trafficking children at that point, right? Uh, yeah. So the article you're referring to, I think I still actually have it on my desk somewhere. Oh, is that it? Yeah. It's called um, Legal Eagles Free Ride. Lawyer pays not a cent for palatial east side digs. It's from the New York Daily News, December 23rd, 1997. And... Uh, basically, there was a property on East 69th Street. Uh, it's a mansion. It used to be, uh, I guess, the official residence of Iran's uh, consul or deputy consul. Huh. Um, and then it was seized by the State Department um, in 1980 due to the fallout from uh, the Iranian Revolution of 1979. And uh, it was... Uh, rented to Jeffrey Epstein beginning in 1992 for $15,000 a month. And this is when basically around the time when Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell are setting up their sexual blackmail operation. Uh, they already had <laughs> like the, the infamous townhouse. Yeah. That was being redecorated, I guess, technically during this time Epstein occupies it by 1995, but continues to rent this particular um, mansion. Uh, from the State Department. And at the same time, they also own a neighboring, uh, to the infamous townhouse, they also own the neighboring building. Uh, So there's like three mansions in New York at the same time that Epstein's supposedly using. 
weird, huh? And one of them is being rented to him by the State Department. And apparently the reason Epstein rented this from the State Department is because he was had a close relationship with the then Secretary of State, James Baker, under George H.W. Uh, Bush. And you think that would, um, you know, end up in the media. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they'd be like, oh, this is scandalous that this uh, sex trafficker guy was uh, being rented a property while he was sex trafficking by the State Department. Yeah. Nope. Nothing. So not a bleep. Um, so, you know, I'm just uh, still after finishing that book kind of like speechless because my brain is fried. But this is a uh, well-documented stuff. So anyway, there, you can also find information about Epstein in, the, in this particular property because the State Department ended up suing him because he sublet it to this lawyer named Ivan Fisher, who used to be an attorney for, um, uh, I guess, organized crime people and narcotics traffickers, a defense attorney. Weird that Epstein would want to rent to him, huh? Uh, it um, sound, sounds like he'd fit right in with the State <laughs> Department. I don't know why they would, they would sue him. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they sued him because Epstein started uh, subletting uh, to this Fisher guy for like twenty thousand a month, and he was supposed to he was supposedly <laughs> paying the State Department fifteen thousand a month, so he was like making five grand for himself. Just put that on the top. Yeah, and, and they got pissed off, and Ivan Fisher was like, well, I'll just pay you, the State Department, directly. Let me stay here, because I think his law offices he ended up putting in there when he started renting it in 1996. Um, and the State Department was like, no, no way. You can't rent it. Only Epstein can rent it. What? Epstein's not even living there anymore. Or at least hasn't has supposedly been living only in the one that Leslie Wexner gave him that used to be the, the private school and whatever. He's already been living there since, like, early 1995 at least. So he hasn't even been living here for like a year and a half in the State Department. I mean, he's they know Epstein's not living there and they had no problem renting to Epstein, but they have a problem renting to any other tenant, including one that's willing to pay even more rent than Epstein supposedly was. Interesting. Yeah, it's weird. That rabbit hole goes super deep. <laughs> I thought I was uh, well versed on the whole Epstein scandal, you know, like knowing the ties to Israeli intelligence and stuff. But yeah, you're saying oh, it's beyond. Yeah, very interesting. It's totally beyond. My conclusion is that it's not just Israeli intelligence. I mean, basically, what I do um, in the book is I basically trace this network from the earliest I could really find it. And this is going back like decades and basically it's a union between the organized crime and intelligence community um and how they got in bed with each other and they've just been screwing everyone over ever since basically and so what you end up happening you know as that uh, alliance develops uh, is the state of israel is created with a lot of these players intimately involved so a lot of the people that were involved in uh, arming the haganah which later becomes the idf um, were organized crime kingpins of the U.S. People like Bugsy Siegel and Mayor Lansky, uh, organized crime-connected businessmen like Samuel Bronfman, uh, playing a major role in, in arming Israel during this time as well. And so when Israel is established, um, its national security state maintains close ties with those networks. And those networks in the U.S. had intimately enmeshed themselves with uh, the... Um, the intelligence apparatus uh, that was, you know, at that time moving uh, from the OSS into the CIA. And that's basically what you have here uh, because a lot of 
the people in, in, in Epstein's network, you have a, a good amount of people um, in, in the Israel sphere. You also have people in, in the U.S. intelligence sphere. Um, and it's really just people who are um, <laughs> have no national allegiance and are about, you know, keeping their their rackets going indefinitely um, and using state protection, um, you know, when it suits them. Well, speaking of which. Um, I know we've talked about Leslie Wexner a little bit and you've you've mentioned blackmail. Um, but like, is that kind of the bottom line here? I know on June 12th, you had a tweet that said, ever wonder why no American politician, including those that publicly promote Me Too or women's rights, has ever publicly demanded an investigation to Leslie Wexner and why he funded Jeffrey Epstein's decades long rapeathon of minors. Uh, American is one nation under blackmail. Um, which is, yeah, the name of the book that you just finished, just to be clear. I, I definitely thought that was interesting. I mean, it reminds me of a, a less nuanced post that I made yesterday, uh, pointing out about how the anti-gun left, the what about the children left, are, are so quiet about the insultingly low prison sentence for Ghislaine Maxwell. So, I mean, like, at the end of the day, um, this isn't like a partisan politics issue. It's not like, you know, as far as like the media talking heads, um, the intelligent agencies and everything like you strongly believe that this is all just blackmail. And that's why this is being kind of kept under wraps. I know it's a bit yeah. more of a broader question, but like that's so, more or less the, yeah. the gist. So the U S has been under blackmail in that way for a really long time. And, you know, I think one of the things that my, my book does a good job of proving is that national sovereignty, the idea that our government is like sovereign is a, is a joke. And it's been a joke for like a really long time, um, going on like three or four decades minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, the, we have this illusion that like, you know, nation state this and nation state that, but really there's like this transnational, um, mob basically, um, that, that controls most of the shit at this point. And, and there's different factions here that are fighting. A lot of times I call them like elite factions, but you know, it's, it's a mix of all of these kind of, of players that can um, gain influence and sort of penetrate or establish themselves or are born into these networks and, and they're, you know, basically fighting over the spoils. But, you know, at the end of the day, they share similar end games, which have to do with uh, control over everyone control over the population. And I think that's why now you see a uh, country after, after country trying to implement the same uh, shit that's ultimately geared towards mass control over what um, citizens, people can and can't do preventing um, dissent period. Um, not just, you know, uh, it, protesting, but, you know, people from dissenting online and then, you know, dissenting at all. A lot of these, um, really extreme con- uh, control systems and this transhumanist stuff and technocracy stuff, you know, it, it's popping up all over the place. Well, why is that? How is that happening? I think if you, um, you know, um, really look into, go really deep on these types of scandals and you look at the different um, details of it and and you follow it over time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, n- none of the stuff about the government works the way they tell you. I mean, it's just a joke. It's all just a huge joke. So I was cynical before. Now I'm really freaking cynical. Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, I don't, I, um, sorry, I might be rambling a little bit here. Anyway, uh, going back to Leslie Wexner, no one's ever going to go after Leslie Wexner. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I mentioned earlier, 
um, about organized crime. So in the 19, mid 1980s, a lawyer that was representing the limited was shot in the face in what uh, Columbus police called like a mob style murder. And they wrote this document, the police uh, detailing Wexner's <laughs> ties to organized crime and how convenient it was that this, this tax lawyer was shot in the face when the next day he was going to um, testify in front of a grand jury related to the IRS about illegal tax havens and stuff. And, you know, shortly thereafter, Wexner links up with Epstein, who up until that point told his friends he was a financial bounty hunter, that he could not only find uh, money uh, hidden by people, but could also hide money for powerful people um, and was involved with people like Edman Khashoggi and a whole bunch of other networks uh, that I that, that I detail in the book. And it's it, he was most likely involved with BCCI and some of these like offshore banking, uh, money laundering um, networks during that period of time. And that's probably why Wexner ended up getting um, in bed with him. And at some point in the early 90s, he just gives complete control over everything to Epstein. Uh, but there's a lot more to Leslie Wexner than than just that. Um uh, and it really hasn't been <laughs> looked into very much at all. Um, one example is, you know, the Harvard stuff. So a lot's been said about Jeffrey Epstein and Harvard. A lot of the reporting on that uh, only really starts at like, you know, circa 2000. Uh, it's like no one that bothers to report on Epstein in the mainstream wants to look at anything Epstein was doing before 2000 or 2001. And that's really telling. Um but Wexner was really the key driver of a lot of the stuff at Harvard. And he, he ran a lot of stuff at Harvard in, in a sense, because he, um, he bankrolled key components uh, of it that are very influential, specifically the center for public leadership. So, um, and that's headed by David Gergen, by the way, and, you know, people in conspiracy land, whatever you want to call um, conspiracy realist land <laughs> are probably familiar with David Gergen because he was very uh, famously approached by Alex Jones a long time ago about Bohemian Grove and gave like really weird answers about it. Um, but he was like a big top uh, guy and uh, a key guy in the Reagan administration. I think even going back to like Gerald Ford and stuff, like a big guy in, in government. And uh, basically uh, Wexner funds into existence the Center for Public Leadership and, and Gergen is put in charge. Um, and it, the whole point is the formation of tomorrow's leaders. So a lot of people are probably familiar with the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader thing right now because of viral clips and stuff right. about Klaus Schwab. Well, Klaus Schwab, when he says we penetrate the cabinets and all that stuff, mm -hmm. he says that talking to David Gergen at the Center for Public Leadership. And that's why everyone there is like, oh, yeah, we get it because that's what we do. But they do it for Leslie Wexner. And Leslie Wexner's whole quote unquote philanthropy is about leaders. Yeah. He has been training for decades most of the top leaders in Israel's government. He has been training most of the top leaders in the American Jewish community that like run APAC. Wexner runs APAC basically. And they say that. I mean, there's people, top people from APAC being like, yeah, all of us here are Wexner fellows and we love Leslie Wexner. That's where we learned everything. And this is a guy who's like an organized crime kingpin, basically, <laughs> uh, who's who's financing like a major sex trafficking operation. Um, yeah, they're not going to go after this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just really scratching the surface. I mean, there's a lot more there. Um, there is. <laughs> I, yeah, I have like three chapters just on Wexner in the book. Wow.
Um, I read an article a couple of weeks ago. I shared it in our uh, with with Jason too. It's uh, it was the billion. It's called the billionaire family pushing synthetic sex identities, and um, oh, the Pritzkers. The Pritzkers, exactly. The, the the this for those who don't know, that's the, one of the Pritzkers is a is the governor of Illinois, and the other like the the rest of his family is like the heir to the the Hyatt um, <clears throat> Empire. Yeah. And if you like, I saw when I started reading this, we talked about what, what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, right? Is how like this whole intertwinement between Disney and intelligence apparatuses, as in like societal control and everything. The Pritzkers are the ones pushing this, uh, like this massive woke trans culture on, you know, through all their their funding of the universities and stuff. And okay, the- yeah, but I think they also push a lot of other stuff too. So let's be—I I think that's important to point out. I guess they've gotten okay. a lot of attention because of of that, but they are also pushing for a lot of other bad crap, and they have been for a long time. And they're totally. just like. A nasty. I was just going to point out that um, Virginia Dufresne, right, and and the court documents released in 2019 uh, during her uh, lawsuit against Epstein, they uh, she mentioned that she was actually trafficked to Tom Pritzker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, is- well, Nicholas and Tom Pritzker are both in Epstein's contact book. Yeah, uh, I think he has like five phone numbers for Nicholas, but Thomas he has twelve, and next to Thomas and his. Uh, in his contact book, he wrote numero uno, whatever that means. <laughs> that's just, this is crazy, right? Like, this that, is the, that's the, the only like them. handwritten thing next to it. Uh, in like the content, like there's not that many scrawls like that in the, in the, in the little black book as it's often called, but Thomas Pritzker is numero uno. Um, you know, you don't need to speak Spanish to know what that means. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty telling. But um, I actually talk about the Pritzkers a good bit in the first chapter of my book um, okay. because they are pretty emblematic of this whole like organized crime, uh, you know, network establishing itself at the heights of political power. Um, and they they have been very powerful. Like J.B. Pritzker, who I think is the Illinois governor right now, mm-hmm. he uh, co-chaired one of Hillary's campaigns. Uh, and the Pritzker family in general was very involved with um, bringing uh, Obama into office, for example, uh, as a senator, and then later as a um, you know as president, <laughs> basically. Um, and and Thomas Pritzker was a big you know big guy on the Council of For- on Foreign Relations, and you know Epstein was a member there. And even after he got arrested and went to prison, they didn't remove him as a member. They were like, "That's fine, stay on the CFR." Um, and actually the first guy who signed off on Epstein's first ever meeting at the White House, Robert Rubin, who later became secretary of treasury under Clinton at the time that Epstein like went to prison, he was head of the council on foreign relations. So, um, no interest in investigating that in, in us mainstream media. It's fine. Everything's fine. Um, but anyway, if people are familiar with the book on, on Sidney Korshak, who's sort of like this mob linked lawyer who sort of straddles, um, the underworld and quote unquote respectable society of the American oligarchy. Um, he was really, they were really involved with the the Pritzkers going way back and the whole Hyatt hotel thing uh, really involved with that. And one of the people really involved with the Hyatt hotel stuff is a guy named Henry crown. Uh, Henry crown's son, Lester crown uh, is part of the so-called mega group with Leslie Wexner and uh, Charles Bronfman. They co-founded in 1991 
one of the main early members of that is Lester Crown. So, I mean, these are all the same, same club really. Um, but the Pritzker family, I mean, people will see in the book very tied in with networks involving uh, mob linked businesses um, and, you know, early intelligence stuff. Well, in, in terms of early intelligence stuff, a lot of these people in intelligence, like the OSS and later the CIA, when they quote unquote leave intelligence, a lot of them get involved in certain businesses <laughs> that aren't exactly legal. Yeah. Uh, or they create, you know, um, uh, one example that comes up in a lot of the book is Paul Hallowell, who was a OSS guy, uh, later makes like this huge <laughs> offshore banking network that's used by like a bunch of these people for decades and decades and decades to like launder their money or hide their money or steal money or commit fraud and whatever. And some of them are openly organized crime people. And some of them are legitimate businesses who go on to be major like campaign contributors or, you know, uh, politicians themselves and all this stuff. And, um, you know, basically what I, I note in the book is that basically what, um, what, what runs the U S like is <laughs> in, in, in very, uh, in one sense, it's, it's kind of like blackmail in the sense that it's like, um, in, well, one person I wrote, I write about a lot in the book is Roy Cohn and Roy Cohn had a system that he called the favor bank. Right. And so he talked about people having open accounts in his favor bank and you would, you know, do all this behind the scenes deal making and you would either get points or you'd get, you know, minuses in the favor bank. Yeah. And if you, it, it's all about leverage. So the ultimate leverage is blackmail. Yeah. Um, it's, they're just looking at all this stuff as currency. You know, you can buy people with hard currency or you can use blackmail as a form of currency to buy people another way. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is all like politics of power stuff and that's mm -hmm. how this stuff really works. So it's no coincidence that, you know, the U S our last president was Roy Cohn's protege, Donald Trump. They used to talk to each other like 10 times a day according to Cohn's old um, switchboard operator at his office. I mean, they were like super close. And uh, Donald Trump's pretty open that Roy Cohn pretty much taught him his whole political style. And it's all about deal making, art of the deal. Yeah, I mean, all that stuff comes from uh, Roy Cohn. And the guy who Roy Cohn got that favor bank system from is the father of one of his best childhood friends, a guy named, uh, uh, I guess it's called Generoso Pope. Uh, what's his name? He was like an Italian immigrant. He was best friends with Frank Costello. Uh, the mob guy that was the inspiration for the Godfather or one of them, uh, supposedly, you know, uh, Vito Corleone and the Godfather. That's essentially modeled after Frank Costello. Um, and he was basically the literal Godfather to Generoso Pope Jr. That was Roy Cohn's best friend. And um, Generoso Pope um, basically like ran the votes like he could manipulate the votes really easily of the entire Italian immigrant community um in New York and he got all these cozy contracts because of his political and organized crime connections for his uh I guess it was a cement company um colonial cement or something I can't remember the exact name but basically he had a monopoly and became like the biggest like concrete or cement company in the whole country because of all these like you know, his, his power and influence and this behind the scenes deal making stuff and, and, you know, power politics crap. <laughs> it's pretty nuts. Um, and there's just like so many crazy anecdotes, um, in this yeah. book that, um, about like how 
people were exposed for committing insanely awful crimes and nothing happened to them. I mean, going back to like the forties or extreme political corruption that should have been a career ender and it wasn't, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of it early on is about the democratic party. And then by the time Reagan gets into power, it's like, holy shit, the Republican party's nuts. And now they're both nuts <laughs> in a way that's like totally meant not to say that the Republicans before Reagan were like, great or anything but a lot of this like um organ it kind of makes sense if you think about it um why it sort of happened first in a sense uh, this organized crime sort of takeover with the democratic party because the, the places the organized crime people took over first were like teamsters unions yeah or like unions uh for dock workers in new york city they just took over unions and so like since the democratic power base is supposed you know at least back then relied a lot on the unions. If the organized crime guys could control how all the unions voted, they controlled the democratic party. And then you have stuff in New York, like Tammany uh, hall and stuff that are like, you know, a lot of the people that used to run that were run that were like known to be associated with organized crime, like Al Smith and people like that. So, you know, it was only a matter of time till it spread to the other party too. Um, Cause the Republican, you know, party and stuff, you know, a lot of them were just, straight up fronting for the oligarchy from from the off right and so uh, but organized crime took over the supposed people's party <laughs> like in the 20s so you know wow right. that's uh that's where we are now and nothing was ever done about it um and part of that as i note in the book is because j edgar hoover was blackmailed from like the wow. 30s on <laughs> because he was in a uh relationship with uh clyde tolson who was like one of his top guys at the fbi and during that period of time you know it wasn't okay to be gay it was like a, a career ender and, and roy Cohn too uh he was also gay um and a lot of these guys sort of got together and and blackmailed the crud out of people after they yeah. themselves were apparently blackmailed because uh, hoover was known to blackmail people all the time uh, but he was blackmailed first and he was blackmailed first by organized crime. And that's why at the FBI never went after the mob. And, and for decades, Hoover was like, well, uh, organized crime is a local problem, not a national problem. So we can't do anything about it. And at the wow. same time, uh, one of the most like mob connected businessmen ever, Lewis Rosenstiel was like buying him, buying Hoover, all these, all these things, funding his foundation, uh, hiring his top aides to be vice president at his giant, uh, you know, alcohol, liquor conglomerate and stuff. And like, obviously engaged in corrupt stuff there. And, you know, none of this stuff gets investigated. So, you know, another thing in the book is like, you know, uh, there obviously needs to be some sort of like investigation to bring all this stuff to light, but the government is also incapable of investigating it. Right. Yeah. Have to be some kind of third party, which will never really have the legitimacy or authority or at least not anytime, probably within our lifetimes. But, oh man, I, I know you're an Epstein expert, but like you're a history buff too. So this is definitely great. I'm sure our audience will appreciate well, it. Well, it's directly related a lot of it to Epstein. I mean, right. uh, I, I, that's sort of where the book starts. But it, I mean, you have to go back there and look at these people uh, to understand how it ended up you know, with Epstein's network and the place where it all meets is around, you know, like Iran Contra stuff, but you have like sexual blackmail running as a theme back from this time. I was just talking about, I mean, it was a major factor actually also in Watergate um, in early stuff in the 1980s too. Um, and it, it's just, uh, the connections are totally mental. Um, uh, I'll give you, I'll give you some other examples, I guess, maybe that are a little more uh, relevant to, um, Epstein. So, 
Um, it looks like, from what I uh, point out in the book, that this whole sexual blackmail operation, when it was set up, wasn't necessarily initially done um, on the orders of a state intelligence agency. Maybe, but it um, it looks like it was originally set up by Robert Maxwell uh, for the purpose of expanding his footprint in New York. And at that time, um, his footprint in New York was first established by um, his purchase of Macmillan, which is like a publishing giant. They did New York office. And he started going to New York a lot um, at the very end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, and basically wanted to become king of New York. Yeah, but the people that enabled him to take over Macmillan, that sought him out and were like, you're going to take over Macmillan and we're going to advise you and you're going to do it with our, you know, <laughs> our help, basically, um, was Rothschild Inc. in New York. And the only other person that they they basically had operate in that capacity uh, like Maxwell for them uh, was a guy named uh, James Goldsmith, who was also connected with Maxwell, also a British guy, um, involved with a lot of uh, the same context and was a distant cousin of the Rothschilds himself. And uh, they basically, you know, the Rothschild family goes back with, with Israel, like way back, like the Rothschild family, uh, the Balfour Declaration was written to a Rothschild. They funded the creation of like numerous um, Israeli government buildings. You know, they're one of the, you know, I guess, even if a lot of them don't live in Israel anymore, uh, they've, they've funded a lot of that state's uh, infrastructure from, from the off and they have influence there. Um, and so uh, when Maxwell decides to expand his footprint in New York, and you know these are the people that got him the footprint in New York in the first place, uh, he goes after he he basically courts three people to help him. One of them is a Texas senator named John Tower, who has ties to a lot of the same, um, I guess, uh, networks around George H. W. Bush in Texas, and he was the main guy that helped Robert Maxwell uh, bug on behalf of Israeli intelligence uh, sensitive um, laboratories in the United States that were involved in the nuclear program, part of Israel's ongoing nuclear espionage against the United States um, during this time. So that's one. Um, oh, by the way, the guy that brought John Tower and Maxwell together was Henry Kissinger. So uh, that's what, one very clear cut example of Henry Kissinger <laughs> basically committing treason. And, you know, it's, um, you'll, I just wish he would get off the planet already. We're all tired of waiting. Been and, involved <laughs> with so many just ominous negatives, the worst actor. Oh, it's, it's mental dude. Um, anyway, um, uh, aside from tower, you have this guy named Howard Baker, also a, a top guy in, in Congress. Um, and Baker had gone into business with Maxwell during this period of time. And a couple of years before this, uh, Maxwell openly started engaging in business with Simeon Mogilevich, who's like a major Russian mobster, um, and basically got super in bed with this network in, in the Soviet Union that was basically analogous to the, some of the stuff I laid out earlier about the U.S. organized crime and intelligence. Those same kind of, um, I don't know, deep states, if you want to call it that. Uh, developed in the for in the former Soviet Union and also in China, and and so a lot of these people are uh, competing or making alliances or like you know dealing with with these groups in in different countries too. 
And Howard Baker had basically become uh, a business partner of, of Maxwell in, in those same networks at this time. And this is a guy that was like, I can't remember if he was House or Senate, but he was a, a big guy in uh, in D.C. at the time. So, I mean, these are major politicians involved with, with a guy who's like on the payroll of a foreign intelligence agency, had already engaged in massive espionage uh, and crimes against U.S. national security. And they're advising him about how to like get in even deeper. And then the third one, there's a guy named Robert Keith Gray, also very involved in politics for a very long time, uh, involved with the rise of Reagan, um, among other things, involved with Watergate to a significant degree, involved with the uh, largely forgotten page boy scandals of the early 1980s. Um, that was also about congressmen uh, having sex with underage people. Um and stuff like that that all got, <laughs> all got covered up. Um, and Robert Keith Gray was uh, closely associated with this guy named Edwin Wilson, uh, who was a quote-unquote rogue CIA agent that was involved in sexual blackmail for the CIA. Uh, Robert Keith Gray was also supposed to have been, uh, or alleged to have been involved in sexual blackmail him, himself. He was a big uh, public relations guy. Uh, he ran Hill and Knowlton, which is best known for the incubator baby stuff that helped get us into the Gulf War. Yeah. Right. So this is the guy, these are the people that, that Maxwell contacts to get him like deeper into the U S as he, as you know, Epstein and his daughter, Ghislaine, who's really in, in the reporting of the time, basically treated as like the beachhead of Maxwell's uh, effort to expand his New York footprint. I mean, she was like his ambassador to New York. That's basically how she's described. And he wanted her to get to marry a Kennedy. Um, that's why she started going after trying to get all around John F. Kennedy Jr., uh, Joe Kennedy Jr., which is Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s older brother, the eldest son of Robert F. Kennedy. And she just ends up in, in, in those networks trying to court favor with those guys um, because her dad was desperate to unite his dynasty with the Kennedy dynasty. Um, wow. Wild stuff. So, you know, that, that kind of stuff looks to me like, you know, he was fronting for certain interests that are, you know, of um, it, mainly himself. Yeah. But also just his broader network and trying to get, um, you know, more of the pie for him and his, his family. And that's sort of what the, it was just an influence operation on a huge scale. And I think after he died, you know, it sort of just became Epstein and Wexner's thing more than the Maxwell's thing, because, you know, when it came out that Robert Maxwell had like stolen all this money and stuff, um, you know, obviously the Maxwell's were on the, <laughs> uh, weren't exactly at their strongest or most influential. Yeah. Everyone was trying to say, Oh, I'm not associated with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think at that point it became more of a, um, <clears throat> of an op that was meant to service the uh, interest of, of Wexner and Epstein. And, you know, at that time, Wexner, uh, the same year, all of this is going on. That's when Wexner makes the, the mega group with the Bronfman family who are, um, you know, I'd mentioned in the book at the very beginning, I mean, cause they're <laughs> very deeply enmeshed with organized crime going back to the twenties as well. And that pretty much continues throughout their entire existence. And so that's why it's no surprise when you see like Bronfman's pop up with like the Nexium scandal and stuff, for example. I was about to ask if that's the same Bronfman. Yeah, yeah same uh, Bronfman's. Totally. Yeah. Seagram's. Yeah. Wow. Man, my head is spinning right now. And I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, sorry. The whole book's like this. <laughs> I know. Um, so I'm sorry if I'm like not no, exactly no. in my best state for interviewing, interviewing, you know, because I'm pretty, 
I also have like a six month old baby. I've been doing all of this with like a new baby. So oh, I'm like, geez, that's not it's easy. been pretty, it's been pretty wild to be honest, but uh, you know, it's all right. It, it was a, it was a book that I really needed to write because you know, something that I've noticed is that when you're trying to explain stuff that a lot of people like to outright dismiss, even without looking at the stuff, right. As conspiracy theory, if you can show them that stuff way in the distant past, you know, be like, hey, the CIA did bad stuff in the 40s, you know, right. people be like, oh, yeah, OK. But if you say the CIA does bad stuff now, you know, <laughs> they're like, well, get out of here, you conspiracy theorist. So right. the hope is, you know, you can show how this developed at a, you know, in a way that people are more receptive to it and then show how it developed over the years and through decades of no accountability in this particular power nexus of organized crime and intelligence consolidating power over time, uh, you get what we have now, which is a complete clusterfuck. I don't think, yeah, you could describe it any better than that. And uh, we're getting close to the end of the show. Um, I, I do have one more just anecdotal question for you. Uh, so, you know, with so many names, dates, information, connections floating around in your head, and just kind of like an overload of information. Like, do you ever yeah, just wake up nuts. in the middle of, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night with like nightmares after absorbing so much of this crazy dark information? No, not like nightmares, but it can be like dream I had last night where I was randomly like dreaming about like the Clintons and banks <laughs> and stuff, and, you know, oh, and then I woke up and I was just like, I have my, my, my like baby was complaining and I was just like, Clintons, wait, no no <laughs> you're a baby <laughs> you know i mean that 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 crap sometimes happens but sure uh you know i mean a lot of to a lot of people because i had to take time to write take off time to write this book they think i've just like disappeared <laughs> from the planet but i've like literally been busting ass in a totally insane way and my brain's totally fried so i hope to spend some more time with my kids now because you know um uh, I, I very much think it's important to fight the good fight as far as work goes. But um, I think one of the biggest uh, things that, that people have to do is, uh, you know, make sure the next generation is is somewhat sane yeah. <laughs> despite all this stuff going on. Because a lot of the crazy shit going on right now is deliberately targeted to kids to, like, just destroy them before yes. they get old. And nah, uh, those of us that know what's going on really have to have to raise some strong kids because you know stuff's stuff's getting crazier all the time pretty much and that's what really happens when you have literal criminals run the governments all over the world for several decades you know competing factions of of criminals with not really any national allegiance just an allegiance to their grift you know um and keeping their rackets from collapsing and they're at a point where all the rackets are about to come down and so they're trying to create a way where they can still keep control and not let not let all the crazy shit they've been doing come out um and and maintain the status quo even as all their rackets march towards collapse well, and that's pretty much where we are now if you don't like it, maybe you should just move to another criminal racket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. They're all they're all pretty nuts at this point. Smallia. Smallia. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have your own website, Unlimited Hangout, which we'll mm -hmm. link to at the bottom of the the show notes. You also write for Mint Press News for years now. Also, the Last American Vagabond, Children's mm -hmm. Health Defense. Is there anything else you want to plug? 
Uh, well, I guess I've talked a lot about the book, so I might as well plug that. So sure. uh, my book is called One Nation Under Blackmail. Uh, you can buy it wherever books are sold for pre-order, which includes Amazon. But you will get it more quickly if you order it directly from the publisher, which is Trine Day, T-R-I-N-E Day. Um, and you can, you know, just look them up, find the book One Nation Under Blackmail, buy it there. Uh, best way to do it because we don't want to support people like uh, Jeff Bezos, who had plenty of his own Epstein ties. Uh, I should say, by the way, the book, uh, I basically had to stop it at like 2003 because it was just too, uh, too long. Uh, but um, I do at the end sort of get into the stuff about how Epstein pretty much had associations with everyone that is in charge of one of the big tech like big companies um gates bezos uh reed hoffman mark zuckerberg uh the google guys i mean why is he hanging out with all of them pretty weird huh so anyway there's a lot more to come out um on that end but let's not support um the oligarchy um that are insanely criminal and uh you know a parasite class basically so please consider ordering the book through trine day yeah i'll stop there <laughs> is there any rough estimate as to when it's going to be published and out yeah so um if people listen to my last podcast which was with trine day itself um the 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 company's podcast um there's been supply chain stuff so uh -huh. it was supposed to come out at the end of next month, but it's actually probably going to be closer to September now because of supply chain crap. So that sucks, but I'll be doing interviews uh, more about it, especially as it gets closer to going. And I'm also um, apparently, well, I hope they didn't cut me out, but I was, I was, I'm supposed to be in uh, this upcoming Hulu documentary on Leslie Wexner and Victoria's Secret, where I talk about Wexner's organized crime ties. Um, and that's going to be coming out, I think, in about two weeks on Hulu. Uh, it's called like Victoria's Secret Angels and Demons or something like that. I saw that. Um, yeah. So uh, we'll see <laughs> how that goes. I might get some hit pieces, uh, depending on how much attention what I have to say in there gets. Obviously, Leslie Wexner won't like it, but uh, <laughs> I don't really care what he thinks. That's so. okay with us. Mm-hmm. Don't forget to please subscribe or donate if you appreciate the work that we do, guys. Also, go to the website, www.thefreethoughtproject.com. At the top, you'll see the tabs for our shirts, a bunch of other merch, and follow us on social media. We're on 16 different social media platforms. And last but not least, please review and rate this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you guys so much. And thank you, Whitney. You know, your understanding of some of these really complex issues is completely impressive, definitely unrivaled. Your depth is vast. And there is a reason why your work resonates with so many. It's accurate, original, concise, uh, powerful. And of course, all the information the establishment and ruling class don't want us to know, which makes it that much more important to know. So we very much appreciate your brilliance and your time today. And thank you for your dedication to the truth. Oh, thanks. Well, I really appreciate that, though. If you don't mind, one thing I would like to add is that my work is very well sourced, and I really would encourage people to follow those sources. So when I publish something online, right, all the sources are there. You can click on the source. Please go read it for yourself. It's very important, I think, for people to be smart consumers of media and to sort of do their own research to an extent. So I make it easy for you. You know, you can go and read the stuff I read to write you know, the article and see that I'm not just like making it up. Right. And I think a lot of people um, should consider sort of 
getting more involved uh, in that way with their with their media consumption, not just take my word for it. Because there's a lot of people in independent media that like don't necessarily source their stuff or, or don't encourage people to like question everything, including them. Right. So sure. I would uh, encourage people if something I say sounds weird, I can guarantee you I sourced it from somewhere. So go look it up. <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. All righty. Well, thank you so much for your time, Whitney. We'll hope to have you on again. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks so much. 